more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Joseph Valencia. And I'm Jenna Fryer. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show or you just want to find out more about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. This episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live and tonight on the show, our guest is Celine Ross. Celine is a second year MFA student in the School of Writing, Literature and Film specializing in creative writing. Welcome to the show, Celine. Thank you. It's great to be here on the other side of the mic. Yes. So Celine is um, a recent addition to our Inspiration Dissemination host team. So she's going to be on the other side of the mic tonight. So to get started, do you want to just give a brief rundown of what you do as an MFA student here at Oregon State? Yeah. So I, it's my second year in the program. It's a two-year program and I am in my genre is fiction. So uh, there's fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. And I primarily write short stories. And as a grad student in the MFA program, we also teach. So this year I'm teaching intro to fiction. Uh, Last year I taught composition. And it's a lot of taking stories apart in that class to see like how they work together. Um, And in my, the two components of the program are uh, workshop and craft classes, which maybe we'll talk more about in a bit. Yeah, so you, you mentioned that uh, you specialize in, in short stories. Um, what is it that you like about that side of creative writing? I think a good short story can sometimes feel like a trick. Like it can sort of feel like it's not quite, a story in the way that you might think that a novel has a story like that has a really, Mm. um, that's very focused on plot. Um, I think you can describe a lot of short stories and in particular, uh, literary fiction, which is what we write in an MFA program as, um, you know, let's say like two people go out to dinner and nothing really happens ostensibly on the surface, but underneath that first layer, um, everything changes. And that's what I think is so kind of delectable about short stories, that there's just this feeling that you get when you read a good short story that um, maybe it's something that happens that's totally bizarre. Maybe it's just perfectly mundane. And um, also in fiction, which is maybe unlike um, screenwriting or, or, for, um, or, or movies, 
you can really focus on these like quiet moments of life that I think often go unobserved um, in other places and render these experiences in a way that um, maybe when you read a good piece of fiction in a short story, you leave the story maybe feeling a little less alone or a little bit more open to the world, to put it in some grandiose terms there. So you said you specialize in fiction. Is there a specific area within fiction that you like to draw most of your stories from or specific topics you highlight? What I tell my students is to follow your obsessions. Um, and that's something that's in this uh, textbook that we teach too. Um, that don't try to write what you think you should be writing. Um, if you think you should be writing... Um, some grand epic, but what you really are interested in is writing stories about your little sister or inspired by your little sister, then um, that's probably the story that you should be writing or at least need to write before you can get to the other stories that you want to write one day um, or you think that you should be writing for some reason. Um, so lately, I, I think that my obsessions are women. <laughs> I feel like all my stories are populated pretty much entirely by, by women and, and girls' stories. Um, other people are, are usually aux auxiliary characters and I like writing about belief and trust and power um, I like writing about why people believe what they believe and often that kind of looks like um, organizations that maybe market a sort of power to the members like you might think of them like a culty vibes um, and how people get drawn into those. And I, I, I don't like kind of like the lewd and um, dark side of, of that, of that theme, but just rather like, what is it that's so human within us that is like drawing us to these, um, to these sources. Um, and I also love writing about, I love thinking about and reading about like wilderness survival stories. So um, I like writing about the woods and, um, what wildness means, particularly in the context of women. And, um, yeah. And then I am from California and I, California is often a central character in many of my stories too. So you talk about, uh, looking out for sort of quiet moments or things that, um, inspire your, your fiction. How does, being on the lookout for these types of themes and experiences change the way you interact with your everyday life. Yeah, I think it's an, an attention to noticing and a practice of being, a practice of like opening your awareness to take inspiration from little random weird things. I think that's why, that's particular, that's definitely why I feel driven to write is because some just, random things will get stuck in my head and I don't know why they're there. And to kind of either like exercise them from myself or just to understand them better, um, I'll try to render them in, in fiction um, or in writing. And it doesn't have to be something that's strange or traumatic, um, but just like seeing a, a weird pigeon on the sidewalk act a funny way. And like, why do I keep thinking about that? little quirk of reality, that little scene that I saw or, um, a line that I overheard at, um, 
at the grocery store or something like that. And, and that will, um, maybe that will like inspire a grander story, or maybe it will just be a tiny little detail in a piece, in a short story that, um, just serves to flesh out the world and make mm. it feel actually real and unique. Um, Lydia Davis, who is an amazing um, writer, translator, um, and is particularly well known for writing microfiction. Like she has stories that are a sentence long, um, or maybe a paragraph long. Um, she has this great article that talks about um, journaling and what her practices for journaling are. And she's a meticulous journaler and talks about just noticing everything um, and writing it down particularly. Maybe that's a, you know, should be stressed as well that it's not just noticing, but it's also uh, writing it down so you have a reference to come back to it later. And um, she's also a big fan of like lines taken out of context. So a line from a Wikipedia article that is like, it's not known. Um, whether he disappeared or went to Mexico, like something like that, yeah. that um, makes sense in context, but you take it out and then that can, that can spark an entirely different story. Um, so we talked about this um, earlier this week, but in a place like Corvallis where it's not um, a super, shall we say, Happening. stimulating city? Yes. <laughs> um, where there's just, you know, it's not, um, you're not going to bump up against um, every every flavor, every, um, every variety of humanity, every circumstance situation, um, day to day that you might in like a big, a bigger city. Um, I think that it is attuning that attention is a big, um, part of staying inspired for me. So just being aware of when I can notice, um, when I can be open to inspiration and, and marking it down. So I'm sure every writer is different in this aspect, but you take inspiration from your surroundings. So do you walk around with like a notebook writing down different things you see, or do you stick with more of those things that just like stick in your brain or like, okay, like that's something that could become a story. I'm probably, I'm more of the latter. Um, I do have like a very chaotic list on my notes app where is uh, I will mark down things. I'm like, Oh, that could be a good idea for a story. But I find that more frequently it'll be something that I like think about in the shower and mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh, that's a weird thing. Like I have been the story that I'll probably turn in for workshop next week. Um, is about this like really kind of gruesome, like spooky story that I used to tell at sleepovers growing up and looking back on it, I'm like, why did I get such a kick out of telling that story? <laughs> like it was like a, it's like an urban legend, like spooky story. Um, but I am working on a story in which that like story is kind of the main character and how the story is received and how it gets uh, transmitted and, and the different reactions that people have and how the teller has a relationship to that story and how the recipients have a relationship to that story. Um, so yeah, so that's just something that I, I probably haven't thought about that story for years. And then I just was like, oh, I remember when I used to like tell that story about the like escaped lunatic, like something that I would just delight in like the spookiness of it. Um, and now I want to take a look at that idea um, and place it in a totally different scenario and world. So inspired by the season, surely, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I do, I love Halloween. And um, I think part of why I love it is 
the world just becomes so much more absurd this time of year. And I think we could all do with more absurdity in, in our lives. Um, like everything doesn't have to be so serious all the time. And, and also Halloween is just always like, it's, it's like, it's so tacky and yeah. it's so great. Like people have corpses on their front lawns and, and spider webs and like body parts here and there. And it's, I think that's just delightful. And you go to the grocery store and like Batman and a bumblebee are, are buying a case of beer. Like it, things should be more like that just <laughs> every day. And um, so, yeah, I think that like delight in the absurdity on a grander scale is something that's very inspiring to me. So when I get to see it, um, you know, out in the streets in 3Ds, that's... <laughs> that's well, it's always interesting new- seeing how an entire like world can just come together around the craziness of Halloween season and even people who you'd be like, they're in a costume (laughs) are. (laughs) So do you find your stories change based on like the season it is? Or do they have that seasonality or do they like stay a little bit more grounded in a central time or place? That's a good question. Um, I don't know if I can say that there is a a direct like seasonality Mm -hmm. to to the stories that I'm working on. Um, I wonder if the poets in my program would, would have a more one-to-one uh, mm-hmm. relationship there since they're always talking about the clouds and all that stuff. You know? <laughs> so is, is that less of an emphasis, would you say, in um, in your medium than in, in poetry is just dwelling on on those sort of visual aspects? or, or well, I, I was just curious as to why you would say that's more something that a poet would would see? Like what would a creative writer see? So I mean more that just poems are quicker to write. um, And so they can have perhaps a more direct relationship with the immediate surroundings and and presence and time. Um, And so in my imagination, I'm thinking that maybe poets would write really wintry poems during the winter. Um, But a short story is something that, you know, is longer. And so it's just going to take more time to, to write. So maybe it, you start an idea in one season and then it, it comes back later on. Yeah. That's what I was actually about getting ready to ask about was, um, how do you balance the, the getting inspiration when it comes versus, you know, you're in a program of study. How do you make progress on the work of art that you're on right now when it's not always linear in your own head or it's really hard. I don't know. I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. Ask me after I've graduated. Maybe I'll have a better answer for you. Um, But I think all my professors would probably also say, yeah, that stuff's hard. But um, yeah, how do you, it's, it's difficult, you know, so workshop is, is kind of a cornerstone of uh, the program. And in workshop, you bring in, um, let's say maybe 10 on the really short size uh, of pages to, to like 30, maybe maybe around 20 pages of, of um, original writing, short stories, or maybe a novel excerpt or, or flash fiction. And then you'll get feedback from nine other, nine other people. So, or yeah, so um, I guess eight other people. So seven other students in the program and then the professor. Uh, there's nine of us total. And then you get this story and you've heard people talk about all the things that should change or could change about it for an hour. And it can be really hard to look at that same story and 
it, it kind of feels like it's been like shot through a hole, shot through with holes. Um, and so figuring out how to kind of put it back together and prioritizing what to focus on first, because you've gotten, you've received all of these edits on the sentence level too. Like people are like, Oh, move these words around. Then you've also received edits on the structural level. Like, I don't think it should start at this scene or maybe be more effective in third person. So often I'll be like just holding a draft and be like, where do we go from here? Um, so revision is hard, I guess is, is the moral of that story. But what I found is like time can help too. Um, it can be hard to take that feedback and then start working on the story the next day because you also need to figure out what you agree with and what you don't agree with because you can't agree with everybody in the room because they have different opinions and they will sometimes disagree with each other about what would make the story more effective. So there are stories that I've started months ago and have gotten stuck on and kind of like filed away with like, Oh, guess that was a dud and never going anywhere. And then have just come back to more recently and seen how to figure my way around whatever obstacle felt like was blocking me or where I thought the character was losing their sensibilities or where I just was bored of it and was like, Oh, this is trash. It's not going to go anywhere. Um, so Maybe it's just time for me. I think it's having a lot of different like pots on the stove and um, having many different ideas to kind of jump around to when one feels like it's stuck, then I can work on a, another story and hopefully find my way back to that original story with something unlocking in this current story that I'm working on. Do you find that with the jumping around sometimes stories start to like merge together and it's like oh this is actually good like together instead of necessarily two different ideas oh like two stories would become one yeah no I find that it's usually the opposite oh like if there's um a story where I like a character um but they're not quite making sense or maybe or maybe they just are such a so big of a character or personality that I feel like they deserve their own their own show kind of um then that'll kind of spawn like another story rather than I think it'd be cool to like try to fit two stories together. And I think in some ways I like imagining that they all exist in the same sort of cinematic universe, (laughs) (laughs) but um, usually one story will become two or more rather than the opposite. Is that an organizing principle for your, your thesis Um, just to kind of have your separate short stories express a common theme that um, you said a cinematic universe. Um. So the thesis for the MFA program um, in fiction can be whatever the writer chooses, really. Um, it should be, I've, I don't remember, 75 pages of, of, of publishable quality. Um, it can be a work in progress. It can be an excerpt from a novel. It can be a collection of short stories. Um past students have also turned in kind of interdisciplinary um, theses. So ones that also have um, an essay or poems in them uh, in the fiction department. I was thinking about a novel, um, but then I realized that I was kind of more into the idea of like having written a novel than the writing of a novel. And so um, I am working on a collection of short stories and Theme-wise, 
I think it's a lot like what I said previously, just following my obsessions um, because I do believe that that's what brings you your best work. And they don't need to interlock with each other on like a logical level and that the characters, you know, it'd be cool to have a collection where like the main character and one is the, the next story is like next door neighbor or whatever, kind of having an interlocking world like that. But I think they'll just be thematically spiritually spir- linked. I was yeah. going to say spiritually linked. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, you talked about uh, growing up in California Mm -hmm. and maybe how that finds its way into the themes you're interested in. Yeah. Can you say more about um, just what you think that particular background has led you to be interested in the things you're interested in? Yeah, I think it's um, a couple of things. So one is I grew up in Berkeley um, and in El Sobrani, which is kind of outside of Richmond, so in the Bay Area. Um, and I grew up um, around a lot of different like ideas about spirituality and, and what probably most of the rest of the country would call like alternative uh, worlds. And um, I grew up like going to pagan groups um, with my family and um, also going to meetings of uh, the Mare Baba community. And so being exposed to like to spirituality and people talking about that um, since as long as I could remember made me really curious about belief and um, what brings people to what we believe. And I think also living in the Bay Area as an adult and seeing people come from other parts of the country who have never like who haven't grown up with that. And then they come to California and and a lot of them might have like big wide eyes seeing all of uh, what goes on over there. Um, That also is really interesting to me too. So that aspect shows up a lot in my work. And then the other part of it is just California itself is like, I mean, it's an exercise in contradictions in so many ways. There's so, so much disparity between, um, you know, the wealthy and and people who, who don't, who are under-resourced and, then the land itself is like this breathtakingly beautiful land. Um, And one of my stories actually takes place in the town where I went to college um, of Isla Vista. And it's in Santa Barbara and kind of Southern Central California um, on the coast. And it is this really beautiful beachside town. And there are these amazing cliffs and these bluffs that are right by the ocean and the sunset there is just really wonderful and we would get a lot of a study abroad students because I who would who would come to Santa Barbara because um I think most places that if you you know live in outside the U.S. and you think of California most places you go in California aren't going to be that image You know, they're not going to be palm trees and by the beach and people like walking around with their surfboards, but Santa Barbara actually is. Um, So I think they, a lot of people came there, but it just kind of was this um, very dreamy landscape, but it also was like, it's eroding. The cliffs are slipping into the sea really day by day. And uh, when I go back to that town, I see how everything is just like sinking and the cliffs are also incredibly unstable and students fall off and die every year. 
but they haven't been able to take effective action to build fences or whatever needs to happen um, to prevent that. And it kind of is because it is a college town, it's this population that regenerates. So um, there's this like never ending outflow and inflow of, of new students who live there. And so I think a lot of these like lessons just kind of get unlearned um, in that population turning over. And it's just kind of accepted like, Oh, we live in this beautiful place, but it might kill you. And, you know, we have earthquakes or we have, we're like waiting. We're all on like the, the edge of our seats waiting for the next big earthquake in, in California and here too. And, um, and then there's wildfire that just dominates the skies for all of summer. Now it feels like, and, and fall too. And, and yet it is like the most beautiful place I think I've ever been. Like all of California is and like means so much to me, but is just slipping like through our fingers and, and there's not, doesn't feel like there's a lot that is being done or can be done even in some ways. So yeah, I would say that that shows up a lot and what I want to write about. So you started at um, UC Santa Barbara and then, and majored in environmental science and sociology. What made you pivot into the MFA program in writing? It's hard to say exactly when it began. Um, I always loved like art and performance and music. Um, I'm also a musician, have a project based in Oakland called Artemisia. But when I graduated college, I kind of had this idea that I was like, if I just don't, tr- if I, if I don't try to be a writer or an artist or like creative in any way, if I don't just like try it, then I think I will spend the rest of my life like regretting it. So I, I guess the, what felt logical at that time was like, I'm going to move to Berlin. So I did. I moved to, to Germany and I went on an au pair visa and I lived in the basement of this, um, this family's house and took care of their two little boys. And I met a lot of writers and artists and poets through this bookstore in Kreuzberg um, called Another Country that I don't think exists anymore. And we held weekly workshops where we'd workshop each other's work and then monthly exhibitions where um, different writers and and, uh, performance artists would exhibit their work. And it's a very collaborative city. I think there's a lot of energy for random experiments and and collaborations and there's also just so much like newness there and I think it's kind of a never never land too and um that's how I describe Berlin the never never land and then also kind of the island of misfit toys there's a lot of people who are just there um curious it's a lot of curiosity and and um and people experimenting with uh, many different artistic forms and I I loved being around that environment, um, but my visa ran out and so I had to come back to the U.S. And I did a number of different jobs um, in my early 20s, but I was longing for that same sort of like storytelling. um, And I actually worked at a Buffalo Exchange in downtown Berkeley and I was the assistant manager and I worked at like the buy counter. So it's like a clothing uh, retail store, but, um, like kind of a thrift store where you can sell your clothes and people would come in with their like garbage bags full of clothes 
and we, I would stand there at the buy counter and sort through their clothes and get to talk to them. And usually, you know, at a grocery store, or whatever your interaction with a customer is like, what, I don't know, a minute, like maybe five minutes. They're buying a lot of stuff. But at the buy counter, it'd be like 10, 15 minutes, maybe longer if they had a lot of garbage bags. And people would come into the store in moments of like grand transition. So uh, maybe they're moving and they're like totally changing their life. Maybe it's like after a breakup and they're getting rid of some of their ex's stuff that's at their place or after a death in the family. Um, there was this family who came in after um, I think her, her sister had died of breast cancer and uh, was selling her clothes. There was this old man who would come in and his wife had just passed away and he would like come in every Sunday for six weeks and he would sell her um, like all these vintage dresses and then all the women working there would get really excited about them. And, and so I just got to hear so many stories from people when I worked there and got to talk to so many people and hearing those stories, I was like, this is the most precious human thing to be here and have people be in these really vulnerable moments, like in the middle of a giant transition in their life. And, you know, maybe sometimes people would just be coming. It was like the summer of Marie Kondo that year. Um, so there'd also just be people there who had read that book and, and were like, I'm changing my life. Um, but being able to get these stories from people, I was like, I need to be doing this to be collecting stories from people and to be sharing stories. And, retaining the aspect of like performance and like audio storytelling felt really important too. And so that brought me to podcasting and radio and I interned at a recording studio. I, um, assisted at a, at the kitchen sisters, a, a podcast, um, based out of San Francisco. I worked in the newsroom at KELW, which is uh, based out of San Francisco too. And then I ended up at Dipsy, um, where I began as a as an audio producer, and then was a senior audio producer um, by the time I left. And I did a bunch of uh, freelance um, too before I started at Dipsy full time. And and Dipsy is audio fiction; it's uh, feminist audio erotica. And so I was a I directed the voice actors there, and also oversaw the sound design, and um, also created um, their sleep audio. So stories that are designed to help you like fall asleep. So we had soundscapes. Um, we also had some kind of just bedtime stories. We'd also have ones where characters would kind of speak directly to you. And working at Dipsy was amazing. It was so creative and it was um, really taught me so much about like directing um, and also about sound design and about audio fiction and how it's really different um, and what you can, how to do like metaphorical sound design and, um, and fiction is, and fiction opened up this whole world for me um, because when I was working at like KELW and the newsroom, it's very different. Like you, I remember the news director there, Ben Trefney was talking about the April fool's day news show that they do, which is just all made up. And he was like, it's the best ever because you just usually you write a story, a news story, and then you think about your sources and you're like, I want to go find a guy whose parent was a teacher and um, now he's going into education. Like for, for whatever story you're working on, you think about the dream tape that you want to get 
and then you kind of go out and try to find that person and sometimes they don't exist. So you have to change. Um, but when you're writing in fiction, you can just lie, you can make it up. And so all of these worlds are available to you. Um, so that having worked in like the nonfiction space and more of the, the news space and, and like in-depth features and, and documentaries, radio documentaries, um, realizing that you could lie or you can make things up, um, was amazing. And I applied to MFA programs after working for Dipsy for about three and a half years, um, because I just wanted to like focus more on story and see what happens when you like slowed down and zoomed in. Um, Dipsy was at a pretty fast production. We'd, we'd produce about three to four stories a week and, we're also working within a genre that didn't have a lot of room for um, many different emotions. And I wanted to be able to access the full range of human emotions. And here I am. So you had shared with us a passage uh, that is something you'd worked on. Um, and I know it, it synthesizes sort of a lot of the, the themes that you have mentioned being interested in. Um, so whenever you're ready, we, we could we could read through part of that. Sure, I'll introduce this piece. Um, so this is a flash piece that um, I submitted for workshop a couple weeks ago. So it is a, a work in progress. And I am just going to read the first paragraph of this story. So this story is called Time Capsule. By the fifth day of wildfire sky, Scarlet had eaten so much ginger that the mound of gnawed ends no longer fit in the compost bin, so she dug a hole out back by the sliding door to bury them. She thought Elaine would object, so she told her sister she was working on a time capsule, one that shouldn't be opened for twenty years. The world, their house and backyard and cul-de-sac on the lonely elbow of a court of manufactured homes built by speed and poverty in the 80s had been a brittle orange place ever since a transformer blew three counties over and containment had yet to inch past 20%. Scarlet's stomach felt in danger of crawling up into her throat. Stewed over the inescapable horror of this world she lived in that she must have in part created. If only she had been better, recycled more, driven less. And although the amber sky gave her a buzz behind the eyes if she stayed too long in it, Scarlet liked digging the hole. Until one day she walked over with a wet handful of ginger ends and found instead a fat figure, pink and yellow pale, the size of a large baby doll, squatting there instead. So you're, you were talking about those wildfire skies, and uh, I don't know if you were here in... Uh, 20, summer of 2020, but in the Willamette Valley, we had a very vivid experience of that. And it sounds like you, it's kind of a part of your summers in the Bay Area. Yeah, I think we both that summer, uh, I was back in Oakland, still in Oakland, but I think we both had a, at least one day where it was just the sun didn't really show up at mm -hmm. all. It was just um, like a dystopian weird Martian day um yeah and now that 
type of wildfire sky. I like I hate that I can go outside and, and smell immediately and be like, oh, yeah, it's it's a wildfire somewhere nearby today. Um, this is not a friendly campfire smell. This is a. Yeah. No. Yeah. This is like and I can just like my body can feel it and like oh, it tense up against this, this, like the brittleness, like the whole world feels so brittle. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that. Um, well, one thing I tell my students, and this comes from a Flannery O'Connor um, quote, is a lot of people come to fiction because they have a lot of ideas and they feel things pretty deeply. Or they come to writing in general because they, you know, they have ideas. Like, I want to talk about this idea. But the way that ideas are made real through fiction is through objects, like just situations and objects and things that feel really real, things that you feel like you can like touch or experience or feel. And the way that Flannery O'Connor puts it is um, fiction is like made of objects and object and humans are made of dust. And if you don't fancy yourself getting dusty, then you shouldn't write fiction. It's not a grand enough job for you. You should be writing it essays if you have ideas about love and friendship and whatnot um if you can't actually put them in the world of the physical where you can actually feel like you can experience what a character is experiencing and the way that you experience what a character is experiencing is through description and example of their physical world like what they're feeling in their body what they see what the chair feels like that they're sitting in and it's easier said than done, obviously, but instead of like writing an essay about how it felt so terrible to live in the summer of endless wildfire skies, I thought maybe I can write about this weird creature that appears and see how these sisters interact with it and explore those same ideas. It's like with the initial like start of the story, it's like, especially people who have experienced the wildfire skies, you're already transported to that like emotional place and that understanding that it puts yourself in the story, mm-hmm. which always makes a super effective one. Mm-hmm. So I know you mentioned during the pre-interview that you don't just sit all day and write at your desk, that you have other activities and hobbies that you're able to kind of express creatively in other ways. So if you want to talk about those a little bit. Yeah, so as I said, I come from an audio production background, um, or more generally just a sound background. I love sound. Um, I am also, yeah, a musician and um, have a trio uh, back in Oakland. But I um, I guess more directly related to the MFA program, I um, am also the host of the MFA reading series that takes place every month in the downtown public library and features writers from the MFA program. Um, I'm the host along with Katie Cusimano and uh, November 17th is our next one. That's going to be at 5 p.m. at downtown uh, public library. And I also have a radio show here on KBVR that is monthly um, called Mystic Yarn, and it features writing from the MFA program and beyond, and that is monthly on the first Wednesday of every month at 8 p.m. The first one's coming up this November 1st, um, and the writer is Loretta Vell, who just graduated from the MFA program, and um, she'll be reading her story, Javi, and another graduate of the MFA program, Jonas, will be 
uh, sound designing that, or sorry, he'll be scoring that episode on piano and I will be um, sound designing it. So I've been working on that so to kind of bridge the my interests of um, writing and then also this world of sound and um, bringing those both to KBVR here. And then I'm also a host on this show that we're on right now. <laughs> <laughs> Getting those podcasts in wherever you can. Yeah. Yeah, I, so I, I guess I had one, one last comment on, on what you said there of, I, I, I noticed that when you were reading your passage, um, there, there's definitely a, a flow to it. So how does it change how you're writing something for the page when you know it's going to be spoken aloud versus just read silently? Like, is that another one of those differences between a novel and a short story and that you're never really going to be reading aloud a whole novel? Are you trying to access something that's supposed to be spoken in short story? Not necessarily. Poetry, I would say, is designed to be read aloud. You're not really fully experiencing a poem unless you're reading it aloud or, or hearing it read aloud. Um, short stories and novels are not expected to be read aloud, but a great way to edit anything that you're writing is to read it aloud, and that's where you can catch yourself uh, creating clunky constructions or tripping over too many, too long of sentences and running out of breath. Um, I love long sentences. I just would use all the commas in the world, hmm. and I do, um, and I'm constantly being told to remove commas. So but part of that's just like a, a, a style thing. Um, but I don't, I wouldn't say that my writing is like different when I'm like, Oh, I'm going to read this at some point. Um, I think I would just kind of do an edit closer to a time where I was actually going to read something aloud, um, for better flow. But, um, I guess I'll kind of speak on that a little bit more broadly. When I came to the MFA program last year, I, came from Dipsy where I had done a lot of directing of voice actors and I thought that I knew dialogue really well because it was all that I had done at Dipsy. I, you know, some uh, kind of narration, but mainly two people, two or more people talking to each other. And I had spent so many hours in the studio telling actors how to say these lines and one way that was really effective was to kind of tell them to like insert an um, and we were always trying to aim for like naturalism for it to sound as close as possible to actual people talking and not like an audiobook narrator or like a radio commercial. Um, and often we would get voice actors who were more familiar with those styles. And so it took some um, collaborative effort to get closer to what we were going for. So I would ask them to, mess up the line a little bit and insert an um, um, or the writers of the scripts who had amazing writers at Dipsy would put in parentheses like casual or, or give a really pointed line direction um, written there on the script. And I would also direct the actors to make it sound really casual or natural or kind of improv a little bit. So when I came to the MFA program, I thought that I knew about dialogue. I was like, okay, I know how to, I know how people sound. I think about sound. I've worked for years in like the sound forward medium. And so when I put that on the page, like, you know, I, I know that people trail off 
people interrupt themselves, people um, say um a lot or say like a lot. And so I was putting that directly on the page because I thought that's what you do. You're trying to make it sound as real as, pos- as possible, but you're not actually trying to do that in fiction. You're not actually trying to render like phoneme for phoneme what a sentence sounds like because if that you had that on the page, it just looks really clunky. If you were transcribing exactly what I'm saying, I would be full of like parentheticals and and stumbling and and I mispronounce something and correct myself. And that doesn't need to be there in fiction. Um, dialogue in fiction is designed to reveal character and to move plot along and to do two things at once. Um, Jennifer Egan, uh, who's an amazing writer, has um, this lecture that I show to my students about compression. Like a short story or even a novel is very short compared to a life. You are only with the characters and in that world for so many words and so many pages. And so every detail in that piece of writing has to do like double duty. It can't just like be explanatory. It has to also like be revealing another thing or hinting at a dynamic between characters or about their backstories and Um, And so dialogue needs to do that too. Um, Real people in everyday life, we, you know, exchange banalities at the, at the grocery store or um, bump into someone and say, excuse me. And your characters can, you know, if that's really important to your character, you can put that in your story, but it doesn't need to be word for word what they exchange. It can be in dialogue summary or an indirect dialogue. And that kind of blew my mind when I came to, um, when I came to the MFA program, especially because I was, I had some hubris. So I was like, yeah, I know how to write dialogue. I'm so good at it. And then realized that I actually like, it's totally different animal when you're looking at words that are just on the page and not in a script delivered to an actor. So that's a long winded way of saying how it's different when it's like spoken (laughs) out loud versus on the page. Oh, that's great. That's exactly what I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, so we're getting to the end of our show. So we have three traditions here on the show, which you are well aware of Mm -hmm. as being our new hosts. But the first one is what is the, your favorite part about your program or your writing or the whole process? Being here is an enormous gift. Like to put this writing and art at the center of my life is such a luxury and such a privilege and one that I don't take lightly. So even in moments, and maybe this is like not specific or unique enough of an answer, but even in moments where it feels stressful or um, where I feel like, oh my God, I have so many things that I need to do. The things that I need to do are like read this book or edit this short story or write a letter to a critique letter to one of my colleagues um, about their weird short story about a grapefruit child or whatever it is that they're, that they're writing. Um, and when I remind myself of that, I'm like, what a gift to be able to be here. And then our next, uh, tradition is to ask you to give a piece of advice to anybody. To anybody? It could be (laughs) yourself in the past. It could be somebody who wants to be, uh, to study for an MFA. Um, Well, my advice for MFA hopefuls would be don't pay for it. Um, Go to a funded program. OSU obviously has a funded program. Um, There's no reason to pay for an MFA. You should be getting paid to go to school. Um, So that's very direct uh, (laughs) advice, but I'll stand by it. No, that's great. 
Direct advice is always helpful yeah. on the show. Mm -hmm. Well, our last tradition is you get to pick your outro song. So what song did you pick and why? I picked AGT by uh, Mountain Man. And Mountain Man is an amazing trio. Um, I think they're originally from uh, Durham, North Carolina. And or I guess I think they actually met in Vermont. But um, one of the singers is, is from based in Durham. And they are mainly acapella, um, tight female harmonies. They have a really strong Appalachian influence and they've been an enormous influence on, um, my music project. And so when I was thinking about what, what song do I want to go out on? It felt, felt like it needed to be mountain man. Well, Celine, thank you so much for being on the show and please enjoy mountain. <laughs> thank you so much, Jenna and thank Joseph. You. Artemisia in the morning, silver, green, or bloom, adorning head within each sage you roll, a diamond dewdrop glowing boing. Oh, hail, feel the burning deepest, brightest, fervent, yearning candle flame, afraid to show, shielding it, nobody knows. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline, and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow this show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.